morning, church. Scripture reading for today is from Acts chapter 13, verse 1 through 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, a man and a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had, got, they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Paul, who was also called Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. Sanctuary seems a bit full today. Praise the Lord. I'd like to welcome my brother who's visiting us for the first time. Uh, he's a college student um, from Mason. So, P-Sam, heads up. Uh, name is Chiung. I think it's Ha, is it? Chiung, sitting over Chiung. All right, let's give a warm welcome for Chiung. Glad you can join us today. All right, so before we look further into this passage, uh, I want you to think about the very first time you went on an overseas mission trip, okay? If you haven't, don't feel bad. <laughs> uh, when, you know, think about your experience. Um, unless someone was forcing you to go, I'm sure your heart was filled with excitement and an eagerness, right, of, of what was to come. And because it was your very first time, it would have been a very significant moment in your life of, of breaking new ground and attempting new things for the Lord. Go beyond your comfort zone, Paul, was the common refrain that I heard as I was preparing for my first trip. And it was true. I had to go beyond what I was familiar with. And with that came a certain level of excitement as well as fear and uncertainty. But in my case, it was mostly excitement because all the mission trips I've been on only lasted for two weeks. <laughs> it wasn't that big of a deal. Not for the early church, though. Uh, the missionary journey or the mission trip 
you can say, that we read about here lasted much longer than two weeks. I think Paul's first trip lasted about a year and a half, and it was a much, much more rigorous trip than what any of us experienced in, in our travels of the past. You know, we fly on planes. That's what we know. And, you know, flying is basically the safest way to travel, you know, and thing is, most of human history, throughout most of human history, missionaries had to travel through the treacherous seas on a boat several days at a time. And that in itself made these trips extremely risky and dangerous. And, you know, if you're like me and you get seasick very easily, you just I guess you couldn't really be an effective missionary back then. <laughs> I would be dead on one of these trips. I, I wouldn't be able to last even a day on the sea. Like, seriously. It was a very risky journey. But the early church was willing to take such incredible risks because their priorities were very clear. They wanted to see the gospel go from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth, right, in obedience to the great commission of their Lord. That was their passion. But it did take a very special church and a very special group of leaders to make this first journey possible because, as you all know, the first is always the most difficult. Right? You have to be a pioneer. You really have to have guts. You have to be a risk taker. So today I'll be breaking down the message into largely two parts, and, and then I'll close the message with some key takeaways, Okay? Uh, here's the outline. Part one, uh, the significance of the church in Antioch. I want us to think about what this church was like in Antioch. And part two, the travails of gospel ministry. Right? I mean, life is hard, but I want us to think about just the unique challenges that uh, we're expected to face in, in ministry okay, as we live as Christians. Part one, the significance of the church in Antioch. You would think that because the early church started in Jerusalem, that, that was the, the main hub, right? Pentecost just exploded and, and the Jerusalem you know, church was born. And, and um, you would think that that church would have been the church that broke new ground and and that that church would have commissioned the first overseas missionaries. But no, it wasn't the case at all. It wasn't the church in Jerusalem. Rather, it was the church in Antioch that became the center of missionary activity for the early church. And this is why, by the way, if you didn't know, so many churches, I mean, so many churches, especially in the, in the Korean church, Seen, you know, so many Korean churches have named themselves Antioch Church. In Korean, it's, it's you know, it, it, here you, you can hear uh, Antioch. That's how it's pronounced, Antioch Church, right? Antioch. Um, some of you may have actually grown up in, in Antioch Church, right? Or Church of Antioch. We call ourselves Cornerstone. Why? Because we love the idea of, you know, Jesus being the one who is our foundation, and we build upon that precious foundation. We love that idea. But churches call themselves Antioch because they love the idea of being a vibrant, missionary-sending church, right? 
which is what this original Antioch church was, right? That, that is the vision they cling to, and that's the church they want to become. It's a noble vision to have. And there are, there are a few reasons why this Antioch church was a very mission-minded church. Let me just mention two, two other reasons, okay? Number one, this church of Antioch, they received a significant amount of teaching, really from the best teachers available during that time, and they became a mature church pretty quickly. I actually didn't go over the specific passage a few weeks ago when I had the chance to, which I kind of regret now, given the significance of the church of Antioch. I mean, if you go back to uh, chapter 11, that's where we see how the church of Antioch was established, okay? That's the key chapter when it comes to Antioch. Now, basically, what happened was when Christians were being scattered through the region due to persecution, remember Stephen was martyred and, and, you know, the Jewish leaders kind of tightened things up and started, like, persecuting Christians. Well, people scattered, and, and some of them began to share the gospel in this city called Antioch. And it says in chapter 11, verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and the great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, right, the mother church at the time. And they sent Barnabas, who was in Jerusalem, right, this very wise, older, godly man who everyone loved. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And a great many people were added to the Lord, it says. And so basically the Church of Antioch was established, you know, as, as the Holy Spirit was doing his work and as, as leaders were being sent to this great city. And so Barnabas, he, he probably felt overwhelmed. And so we see in, in verse 25 in the same chapter, it says, he went to Tarsus. Who was in Tarsus? You remember? Saul, right? Who would later be called the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was... In Tarsus, he kind of disappears from the scene, and now he, he reappears in chapter 13. Uh, and now the spotlight is, it, it kind of shifts from like Peter and Barnabas to, to Paul from this point on. But Barnabas, he goes searching for Saul, right, and brings him to Antioch. And it says for a whole year, they met with the church, both Barnabas and Saul, and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, so you should know this too, it says, the disciples were first called Christians. It was in Antioch that believers were first called Christians. Right? By the way, it wasn't Christians who, who called themselves Christians. It was the watching world who noticed that these people were very different from the rest of them in terms of what they believed and how they behaved. And the name that was given to them wasn't originally meant to be heard as a compliment, by the way, rather as, rather as something derogatory, right? as in, man, these Christ followers are weird, right? they are strange, and they were different. They were set apart from the rest of the world. That's what it means to be holy, a holy people, set apart for God. And so a beautiful church, a holy church, a church set apart for the Lord. It was born right, due to the ongoing labor of 
godly men such as Barnabas and, and Saul. By chapter 13, the chapter we're looking at today, the church, this Antioch church, is probably around six years old. So much time has passed since chapter 11. Right? So about, about a six-year-old church. Secondly, this Antioch church was a diverse church located in a very diverse city. Okay, there, there are pros in, in being in a diverse location and, and being a church with a great diversity of people. There are definitely challenges, but there are also very, you know, great strengths. And, and he, here we see one of this being a strength of this church. One commentator writes, you know, because Antioch was located in Syria, that means there were many Arabs as well as Greeks and Romans Right, not to mention the Jewish diaspora that were there. And by Luke's time, Antioch had grown to be the third most important city in all the empire. Rome was first, Alexandria and Egypt was second, then Antioch in Syria was third because of its extensive Mediterranean trade. And our author Luke here, he also wants to make sure we don't miss this point that this is a very diverse church, and which is why I believe he lists the five primary leaders of the church in Antioch who share very different backgrounds. And some, have, some have called these men the Antioch Five. Okay, that's a good way to remember these men, the Antioch Five, because they play such a significant role in shaping the missionary efforts of this church, right? The, the Antioch Five. Who were they? Oldest guy, Barnabas, probably. You know, he was the one who mentored Saul, and he was actually from the island of Cyprus where they will first visit on their missionary journey. I'll show you a map a little later, okay? Second listed is Simeon, uh, and he was called Niger, okay? Literally, it means black, right? For obvious reasons, it's believed that he was from Africa, Lucius of Cyrene is also believed to have been from Africa as well, since Cyrene was located in Libya, okay? The fourth person mentioned uh, Menaean. Uh, he's said to have been a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I want to hear that story. You know, this is referring to Herod Antipas, okay? I, I mentioned to you three Herods last time. It's Herod Antipas. Uh, who was responsible for beheading John the Baptist as well as overseeing the crucifixion of Jesus himself, okay? So it's a big deal. Uh, Menaean was originally a man of great power and status, but Luke points out here that he is now, basically Jesus plucked him out of that lifestyle, and now he was a man, he, he is a man of prayer, a man of fasting, right? And a man who was deeply committed to uh, gospel ministry, gospel expansion. And finally, Saul is mentioned, right, to complete the Antioch 5. And prior to chapter 13, as I said before, uh, this Saul figure is, is a relatively unknown figure, but starting from chapter 13 here, sort of the spotlight shifts, and we see Paul becoming a more prominent figure throughout the pages, Right? So, how was it that this Antioch church thought of pouring so much of their resources and, and 
and sending out a team on this very long and risky journey? Well, you know, partly it's because of their diverse backgrounds. It's because they had firsthand knowledge of how lost people were right back in their hometowns. They've been to places. They've seen how broken the world is. And their hearts ached, right, to have the gospel shared with the lost. For instance, Barnabas was from the island of Cyprus. So imagine, he was a godly man. That means that his heart must have been yearning to share the gospel with as many people in his hometown. And I bet that he, he was hoping that one day a church was going to be planted, right, in Cyprus for the sake of his family and friends and neighbors, Another interesting detail we learn from this chapter is that the Antioch church, right, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they chose to send their best and most qualified leaders to be missionaries. Brothers and sisters, I want you all to know that I have not given up my dream to raise up homegrown missionaries and send them off, you know, that we would be the home church to future missionaries. That's one of my dreams. Do I not get an amen? <laughs> you know, uh, we set up a prayer box uh, in the back of the sanctuary. I hope you, you, know, that you recognize the black box, okay? Uh, it's meant to be a prayer slash comment box, okay? So don't, don't put any, like, critical stuff in there. Just kidding. If you have any criticism, it's fine, but you know, it's mainly to be a prayer box, okay? And uh, thankfully, I, I, I looked in a few weeks ago. There was one you know, prayer request in there, and it says something like this. Lord, may we be a church that sends out missionaries from our own members. That wasn't me, by the way, right? It wasn't me. I, it's one of you. I don't know who it was, but whoever you are, I want to thank you for wanting that for our church. You know, we definitely need more of us to be praying such prayers. And guess what? If, if we continue to pray such prayers, why wouldn't God make it happen for us? I'm confident that he will when the time is right. Okay, God has blessed us, blessed us with a good number of pastors already. And so I'm praying, okay, thank you, God, for the pastors. Can you also <laughs> raise up some willing missionaries as well? But here's the thing, when we do send out missionaries in the future one day, our intention should be to send out the most gifted, okay, the most qualified, the most mature among us, right? Okay, so I'm praying for you, Hugh. Uh, may, may you <laughs> it shouldn't be, man, he who is such a troublemaker, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's kick him out, let's send him out because, you know, it's better that he be over there than here, right? That shouldn't be our mindset. The people we send out ought to be those who are already doing valuable work for us so that if they were to ever leave, we would absolutely feel their absence. You know, people who are just the MVPs, like the people doing a lot of just faithful service, uh, those are the people that we should be praying for, that God would send them out of our midst from us, which, by the way, also means that the ministry you offer to the church 
is meant to serve as your training for future work, okay? whether God sends you out or not. Um, you will never convince me that those who are lazy and unfaithful servants here will all of a sudden you know, transform themselves into a diligent and faithful servant elsewhere. That's not how it works, okay? Your character goes with you. So brothers and sisters, whether you're called to the mission field or not, I encourage you to be faithful in what you're doing now. That's a true test of your character. Part two, the travails of gospel ministry. Uh, let me take a moment to share with you this map that should give you a better sense of how difficult the journey was for Barnabas and Paul, okay? You can shut the lights off if you need to. Uh, here's Syria, okay? Here's that important city, Antioch. That's where the Antioch Five were. And the Holy Spirit led them to Seleucia. I guess it was a port city. And from here, they traveled to this island called Cyprus where Barnabas was from, okay? And this... This journey, it looks kind of short on the map. It's uh, roughly 130 miles. And just imagine, there was no plane. They had to take a boat, and I'm sure it wasn't a great boat. Okay, I can't, can't be sure how long it took them because we don't know what kind of boat they had, but safe to assume that it took them at least a few days, okay? And uh, you just, you don't know. You don't know what the circumstances were back then. Uh, I'm sure it was very difficult. They traveled to a city called Salamis or... Salami, <laughs> uh, that's, hey, that's, that's closer to the actual pronunciation, okay? Really, sal- salami, right? Um, from here, uh, John Mark is introduced. I'm not sure if he was actually from that city or he traveled with them from Antioch. But uh, John Mark is introduced. John Mark is the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark, but he's also a relative of Barnabas. That's why Barnabas is so protective of, of John Mark through uh, through the New Testament, a younger guy, right? Um, they ministered through the island of Cyprus uh, from Salamis to Paphos. It's about 90 miles. So imagine all the places they would have visited and uh, just all the time spent. Uh, probably mainly traveled through foot, I'm guessing. And here, the... The passage we just read, it highlights one just very, I guess, significant conversion because it was a high Roman official, proconsul Sergius Paulos, okay? And from here, they traveled about 100 miles or so, probably a little more, to Perga uh, in a place called Pamphylia. And I want you to also notice that the green portion here is Galatia, okay, which I'll later comment on. And uh, from Perga... Uh, the team travels to Antioch in Pisidia. It's a different Antioch. You've got Antioch in Syria and Antioch in Pisidia. But uh, this is a, a coastal region. Uh, this Antioch in Pisidia is a mountainous region. Okay, now, I had to make a decision. You know, am I going to spend a lot of time talking about the con- conversion of this Roman official or am I going to kind of frame things differently. I chose to frame things differently, okay? I want to say this. You know, we should definitely all be thankful for this Roman official's conversion, okay? Uh, the, you know, the conversion of a high-ranking Roman official, especially in those days, is, is no small matter, okay? It was important, 
Very important detail, and that's probably why Luke added it. But it just seems strange to me that Luke doesn't mention any other ministry activity or any other conversion, not even the simple expression of like, and, you know, Barnabas and, and Saul traveled through Syria, uh, not Cyrus, and, and many were saved. Not, not even that kind of expression, nothing. It was just this one conversion highlighted. And, you know, let's not overlook the fact that many miles are traveled. You know, some time was spent in Perga as well, in Pamphylia, but nothing, really nothing. Um, and so I, I ask, what's up with that? And it's not just me. People have asked that question. What's even more strange is what we read in verse 13. Now, Paul, it says, and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga, right, the coastland region in Pamphylia, and then, surprisingly, this is supposed to surprise us, John Mark, or just John here, left them and returned to Jerusalem, it says. Returned to Jerusalem. What? Why in the world would he do that? The journey essentially just started. It's just the beginning, John. But we see John Mark essentially deciding to abandon the mission. He bails. He's done. And that's not quite how Luke puts it here, but we know that that is how Paul took it based on what we read in chapter 15 later on, right? This is right before Paul's second missionary journey, which is a lengthier one. Uh, chapter 15, it says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. Okay, so he... Even though John bailed on us, Barnabas is sticking with his guy. He wanted John Mark to go uh, as another, you know, assistant or a companion. But, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn or deserted from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And so Paul was opposed, like, no way, no way I'm going to trust this guy again. And there arose a sharp, not just any disagreement, a sharp disagreement between Barnabas and, and Paul so that they separated from each other. Oh, wow, this is a pretty, pretty tense exchange. It came to a point where they, they chose not to do ministry together. And so Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, again, his hometown. So you kind of know where Barnabas' heart was. And Paul chose to take Silas, another companion, and he journeyed upward. And so I'll, I'll show you probably later, uh, maybe some other week, I'll show you like how length, how, how much more rigorous the second missionary journey was, but he, he went in a different direction. So they, they, they separated. Now, on the one hand, it's impossible for us to know for sure the exact reason why John Mark chose to leave prematurely, okay? This, we don't, we're not given just enough detail, so there's no way to exactly know. But on the other hand, there's a very plausible reason that many people suspect to be true. And I believe that this is what likely happened, okay? Because I, I've interacted with plenty of younger people in my day, right? I'm, I'm one of the older guys now. These young people. <laughs> the younger John Mark deserted the mission because it's just simply put not what he had expected, right? The journey was long and much more difficult than what he had 
imagined. I'm sure he, he would have thought that the ministry, because he was with like the two hotshots of the day, like Barnabas and Paul, you know, I mean, I've seen what they can do. Right? He, he, he heard what happened in Jerusalem and Samaria and these other, other parts, right? And so he, he was probably excited and he was expecting something explosive. But the reality was that, especially in these earlier days, earlier weeks, the ministry was a slow, a very slow grind. And so I believe that he probably lacked the, the gritty character to push through during the slower season they were in. You know, I, wouldn't you agree? It's actually easy to, to be on a two-week trip and have this schedule that's jam-packed with activity and excitement, you know? But what happens when ministry slows down? What happens when monotony sets in, right? when things become a routine, you know? That's when you really become challenged. The reason why Luke doesn't record much of anything here other than pro, this proconsul's conversion is, hey, it's because there probably wasn't much to record, you know, at least during these early, this early portion of ministry. I mean, think about, think about how Paul describes his, his missionary life as he recollects what he had to endure. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is very informative. <clears throat> Just reflect on this with me, okay? Five times, he says, I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So... Paul was, he struggled with anxiety too, but he was anxious, he was concerned over others, their spiritual well-being. And I'm not saying here that all of these hardships were experienced on this first journey, definitely not. But he, along with Barnabas and Mark, would have at least experienced some of these hardships, right? They would have. What we also know is that Paul did become severely ill around this time. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, again, that's why I showed you the green portion. That's Galatia, okay? So Paul, Paul writes to the Galatian Christians later on. He says, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And, and though my condition was a trial to you, so it must have been bad, right? Though my condition made it difficult for you, though I burdened you with my physical ailment, essentially, he's saying, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God. 
So based on what he writes here, okay, some scholars believe that Paul caught a pretty serious disease. Right? They say most likely malaria because that, that's what was prevalent in the lower coast, coastal plains of Pamphylia. And it's because of his illness that he and his, he and his party had to press on into the healthier mountain climate of Pisidian Antioch, right, the, the, the northern city that I pointed out earlier. That, that's like 3,600 feet above sea level. And so because he was sort of forced to leave the lower coastal plains and move up to the mountains and to Galatia, that's why Paul is able to say, I preached the gospel to you at first because of this illness I had. I, in other words, I couldn't stay in Pamphylia. I had to move up to Galatia, and, and God gave me the occasion, right, the opportunity to, to preach the gospel to you. That, that's what many scholars believe is happening here. And think about this. If, if Paul really did catch something like malaria during this trip, it would definitely explain why ministry was so slow early on. And it would also explain why taking John Mark with him on his next journey that was more rigorous was definitely out of the question in his mind. You know, malaria is dangerous even now with medication, right? Think about how much more debilitating a disease it was back then. It would have been back then. And it was when Paul was sick and in need of more support and more care and more help, not less, is when John Mark decided to abandon the team. These young people. <laughs> Wouldn't you have been uh, distrustful of such a person if you're in Paul's shoes? You know, I remember uh, Percy suffering from a severe case of kidney stones on a two-week mission trip. Right? I, I, took, uh, I was a youth pastor for many years. I took some high school students to Guat Guatemala. And, um, you know, I, I was suffering from some pain while in Philly. You know, kidney stone pain, but it was bearable. But once I landed in Guatemala, the altitude is much higher there, so I think it actually intensified in some way that the pain, I could feel it more, and so I was uh, actually bedridden. I was like, I don't think I can do anything. And so <laughs> they checked me into the clinic, and the clinic sent me to the Guatemala City Hospital, and uh, it was in Guatemala City, this unknown, unknown region. <laughs> I actually underwent surgery for kidney stones. Um, I was out for a week. But thankfully, there was a, a female teacher that uh, went along with us, and so she was the, I guess, second in charge. And so while I was out, she actually handled things really well. And so I was thankful for her. But what if, what if I was bedridden in the hospital for a week, and, and she actually you know, kind of just collapsed and, I don't know, just lost it, bailed, you know, couldn't handle the pressure or stress. What if that happened? Then how, how am I to trust her for the next trip if we ever went on one, right? I think that this, that's what's going on here. And so let me close the message by offering just, you know, two life lessons we, we can consider here. Um, offer some practical wisdom as we close. Uh, number one, Brothers and sisters, whether you felt abandoned like Paul in the past, okay, and, you know, 
when you do life long enough or when you're in ministry long enough, okay, you will have, you will experience this. You will feel like, man, people are abandoning you, okay, over like small things. Um, and, and you will feel like you've been wronged, right? It's going to happen at one point or another, okay? So whether you're like that or maybe you've been the abandoner, okay, because we have a lot of young people in our church, right? I'm sorry. You guys are so, like, uh, serious. Can you? I'm trying to, like, offer some, you know, lighthearted humor here, you know? <clears throat> Don't be so offended, you know? Uh, maybe, you're the, maybe you're the abandoner character, like John Mark, you know? And, and no matter who you may be, I, I want to encourage you to, uh, to seek reconciliation right, with one another. Second uh, Timothy is considered to be the final letter Paul wrote before his death. And it's a very, there's a very encouraging piece to it. In, in chapter 4, he writes this. Timothy, uh, Luke, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, right? Get John Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Okay? And this is encouraging. This, this should encourage all of us because it serves as evidence that if there ever was unhealthy tension between Paul and, and Mark, at the end of his life, their relationship was restored. Praise the Lord. Okay. And I'm sure there was, I'm not sure how much tension, but I'm sure there was tension. Things weren't comfortable, but they were moving toward, they weren't shutting each other out of their lives completely. They were open to be reconciled. I think that should always be our posture, okay? No matter how, how much someone has wronged you, okay? No matter how much wrong you've committed, that you will be open to reconciling with others, right? This, this needs to serve as an example for all of us here. It's never too late if you're a John Mark character in life. It's never too late to make a return. Right? It's never too late to be restored, we're called to extend grace to one another, and as long as you're willing to humbly receive grace, grace will be offered to you. And if you're like Paul in this story, you've been deeply disappointed by, by those who have just, they, they chose to abandon you or they abandoned the work of ministry. If that's you, then you need to be willing to forgive them and extend the grace that God has shown you through Christ. Don't be so stubborn. Don't be so prideful, arrogant. You made the same mistakes as well in life. So be gracious if you've been hurt in the past. Lastly, brothers and sisters, let's not embrace a romanticized view of life or ministry. You know, don't think that life or ministry is going to be just like a two-week mission trip where it's all positive, you know. And you come back with this grand report, you know, all is well. What a wonderful thing God is doing, you know. Life, and especially ministry, is supposed to be hard if you're a Christian. I sometimes say to people, life is hard and ministry is like war. Literally, it's like, it's like war. So don't be surprised if I look beaten up at times. I know that I do. <laughs> One commentator puts it this way. If 
these godly men had trouble in their work, we should not be too shocked if we have trouble too. You know, we sometimes talk as if everything in the Christian life is going to be smooth and nothing bad is going to happen, but Jesus did not promise smooth sailing. He promised suffering. And here's Paul's language in Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You know, before I actually reflected upon acts in, in depth, I, I, th- these words didn't have much weight, you know? It didn't feel, th- these words just felt obscure. But these are not imaginary hardships for Paul. These are the very things he had to endure as a Christian missionary. And he's basically saying to us that these are the things that we should expect to endure in this life and in ministry. But thankfully, he also says, but none of these things, as frightening as they may be, can separate us from the love of Christ. Then he goes on to say, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So brothers and sisters, this is a call to persevere in life and in ministry that God has entrusted to us. What difficulty have we really had to endure compared to those who have gone before us? Let's keep things in perspective. Wouldn't you agree that life was far more difficult in the first century compared to our lives now? But why do we falter so easily? Why are we so easily shaken? Brothers and sisters, let's not give up so quickly just because we feel some resistance in life. There's still a race to complete. If God's grace was sufficient for them, surely God's grace is sufficient for us now. If they were able to endure torture and imprisonment and sword and disease and pestilence, surely we should be able to endure these smaller trials that we face in the present time. Don't you think? Let's keep things in perspective. He who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion is a good promise to hold tight, to embrace with your heart. So with that in mind, look to the Lord and trust that he will give you the grace to persevere joyfully to the end. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for the grace of revealing your truth to us and transforming our lives through the work of the gospel. And we thank you that the gospel was not limited to Jerusalem, but that your purpose was to establish a multi-ethnic church in the city of Antioch and to use that church as a missionary base that would ultimately change the world. Lord, much gospel work has been done throughout history, but even now you remind us that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So Lord, we desire to send out workers. We not only desire to be a church that generously gives financially 
to others, but we desire to be a sending church where homegrown disciples among us are later sent out to places the gospel has not yet reached. We confess that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So awaken our weary souls, give focus to our distracted minds. Through your spirit's work, realign our priorities so that our church would be able to produce pastors and missionaries and various kingdom laborers who are not only willing to serve locally, but globally for the sake of reaching the, the nations, the unreached. God help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together and give praise to God.